0: Thank you very much for this invitation to be here. I am a little bit sad um, because I just found out that two of my what we would say in the 60s and 70s comrades have died and so I'll talk about that later in my story. Um, so I want to thank Bridget and Marcia for inviting me to share my experience strength and hope and I wrote some notes so that I'd stay on task Uh, because I have a lot to say. I want to start out by saying this is my AA story. It's the only story that I could tell you about how I applied the principles of the program to my life uh, so I could survive a disease of mind and body. Um, My story isn't a critique of you, AA, (laughs) or any of my enemies, or any of the people I love. It's my story. So in the spirit of that, I'd like to say that my sobriety date is December 22nd, 1986. And that was 34 years ago that I walked into this program. And for that, I am absolutely grateful because one, I'm alive. I wanna start out by talking about what it was like, then what happened to me and what my life is like today. Cause I think that's fair enough. If I wanna prove to you that walking into this room was worth it, Um, As you can see, I'm an African American. I'm 68 years old today. I am a grandmother. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, which was a political city of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. I was lucky to be raised in such a place. However, I grew up in a family where there was domestic violence. I saw beatings of my mother on a regular basis. I also was born in 1953 when my own country was racially segregated. So it was okay for Negroes to be over here while whites were over here. So I grew up in this behavior of how I was supposed to act around certain people. Before I ever drank, I never belonged. I was always weird. (laughs) I never fit. It was just a given to my life. And my country was racially segregated. Women did not hold any positions of authority and gay people were hidden in my family and in other people's families too. I um, graduated from college at uh, 16 only to get the hell out of my family, get away from my crazy father who my mother eventually divorced and became a single parent. And of course our life went on another roller coaster with that situation. I went to college um, at 16 and prior to that, I had been involved in radical organizations, which started about 13. And when I say radical organizations, I mean in the United States. So my story is not one of somebody who was a conformer. (laughs) I was in organizations such as the Black Panthers, the Republic of New Africa, African Liberation Movement, and all of those groups that young people would have, like me, would have aspired to in order to have a different narrative of the country that I that had principles they didn't live in. It was very painful to grow up in the 50s and to see black people killed with no remorse. And later in the 60s to have the potential in terms of the movements at that time be powerful. And of course I would be attracted to them. But by that time I was mad as shit at the system. I was rageful. I was absolutely not happy about any kind of God concept. I thought that was the opium of the people i certainly was a marxist i was not for white authority and i was absolutely not going to ever be controlled by a man because what had the men in my family shown but violence and disrespect for women i went to college at 19 and started drinking i subscribed to a feminist point of view Uh, college life was powerful because we were challenging the institution and the community and my entire life till last week. I have always been involved in some sort of activism. It has shaped my particular life. However, I went to college very confused in terms of my identity. I had no capacity in all that involvement (laughs) in radical activities because what I saw in those radical groups was behavior that was inappropriate, amoral, and unkind. And here were young people, very much like myself, expounding this critique of society, but living personally in ways that I found abominable and awful. It made me think about some of the things that my grandmother told me, that if the person lives like an alley cat, they are alley cat, no matter what they say. So I was in deep in what I considered to be struggle, but I did not see values that I ascribed to. I saw ideals that I liked. And of course, I had no capacity to formulate any kind of intimacy with anyone. So my drinking began at about 19 with the girls. We went out, we partied, we drank, we sad, we sung sad songs, and it was wonderful. Except when they stopped drinking, I could not. <laughs> and I drank until I was about 33 years old. I didn't realize at that time that I had fierce anxiety I just thought I was high-strung and intense. Um, I was very uh, embittered by the violence that was imposed on my community by white police officers. And I had deep fear of everything, but I had a persona of being a badass. So what was on the outside did not match what was on the inside. And then all the political involvement up until the time I was in my 30s I had two nervous breakdowns. What I, that's the word that they said when they took me to the hospital and put me in one of them white vests and told my mother to come and check me out because I was lunaticking. I think I just was torn between this inside of me and all those things that I needed and wanted didn't match the lifestyle that I was living. And I had no idea of what Uh, was really wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me. Three things happened. I got pregnant in 1978, and I wish I could say who the father was because I was a tramp, as they would have said in college. I slept with who the hell I wanted to. And I eventually married somebody who had been in the Panthers with me, and we were committed to raising this child, which did not work out, of course. So I stayed married about 20 months. And I had two children, and I immediately divorced that person. The second thing that happened to me is that my behavior, my moral decay, as the big book says, women go down fast. I was a classic example, not just in terms of my sexuality, but just in terms of me feeling that anything I needed to do to survive, cheat you, steal from you, sleep with your husband, be a liar, it was all fair game. (laughs) And I did it. Certainly, I was looking for love in all the wrong places and I did things like left my kids in the house and went out and drank in the bar once they were asleep. I got divorced a couple of times and of course that meant I got married and of course that was a disastrous experience. And it was somewhere along that journey of drinking for 17 years, I drank just like Bill W. I drank 17 years. The last two were the only two I was interested in stopping. And guess what I found? I couldn't stop drinking. Two years, I failed to stop drinking. All of my solutions outside of me, get more education, get me another man, get another marriage, get a big time job, live in a fabulous house, have all the status, be respected, (laughs) organizational affiliations to fight every damn thing, win every award you can win. And guess what? None of that stopped me from drinking. What stopped me from thinking I could solve it was an incident that took me to the church with the red door. And y'all know them churches where all them drunks are at the bottom <laughs> and you know about them, but you don't think that you. you're one of them. I was at a college party. It was a the day before the 22nd of December. And um, I'm in a situation that I'm uncomfortable in. I'm the only Black professor that's at this institution. People are getting drunk. They're talking shit. I'm now taking it personally. And I reach over, and I start drinking, because I had already had the behavior that around white folks, I did not get drunk at all, because I wasn't going to lose my tongue. And in this instance, I did the exact opposite of what I had done. I started drinking. And before I know it, I went berserk. I went off on all of those people and they were scared to death. And why wouldn't they be? My behavior was over the top, totally inappropriate. I later was embarrassed. I thought I would lose my job the next day, certainly all the status and prestige. And instead I went to the church with the red door. I remember going there about 4.30 in the afternoon. I knocked on the door, a man came out. I said, is this AA? He said, yes, it is. I said, I think I have a drinking problem. He said, can you wait until the meeting tonight at 7.30? I said, hell no, I'll be drunk in an hour. He said, come on in. And he sat down and he told me his story. He was the pastor of this church, by the way. Then he got on the phone. uh, We didn't have cell phones then and he called some other people and they came over um, and they told me their stories. And by 7.30, they had gotten my children, which nobody does today, (laughs) brought them to the church where they sat for the next years of their life in the back room, in the playroom. And I went to my first AA meeting. And I remember I was asking for help. I walked into that room and I saw some things that disturbed me. One, I saw God on the wall, at least their interpretation. This blue-eyed, blonde-haired, man on a cross, and I saw in those steps that God would restore me to sanity and ain't no way that's gonna happen for a person like me. I don't believe in any of that. I believe that that has been used against my people in terms of religious conformity, and I think this is not gonna work for me. I'm in a rural community of less than ten thousand. They were all white. there were two women and nine men. and guess what? I had no other place to go. So I sat there and I listened. And they said things like, keep coming back. I had no place to go. So every Tuesday and every Thursday and every Sunday, I first went back to see who got drunk and who didn't come back. But they kept coming back. They were nice. They were listening. I couldn't share. I just cried because they said things that were part of my story. And how did they know? And when they said that I was spared the last 15 years of hell that many of them had gone through, then I could see that I had a choice around this AA thing. I got a sponsor. In fact, I've had three. And she told me, call me if you have a problem. I used to call her five times a day for the first month. She used to laugh. I used to go over to her office. I couldn't, I was shaking because I found withdrawals extremely difficult and I began to feel vulnerable in all my feelings. And remember, I lived in my head. (laughs) It's the only place I lived in my head. And I started feeling my whole body and she told me it was okay. She told me that it would get better and I got better in terms of not drinking. I began to learn from the people in the room, how to live a sober life, how to live that day sober and the next day sober and the next day sober. And I did not find it easy. I had to learn to shut my mouth. (laughs) I had to learn how to not say everything I thought. I had to learn how to trust other people, which I wasn't. People had to prove anything to me before I would do it because I was this have to see it kind of person. So I followed my sponsor around like a puppy dog just to check and see if she was bullshitting or not. And she was not. She told me something early on. She said, "You know what? We may not be friends, but I'm here to show you the program of how it saved my life. And uh, that's all. Whether you like me or not is irrelevant." And I thought, how, wow, that's not a that's not a, a voice of somebody who wants me to stay, but that was exactly the voice that I needed to hear because I needed to be confronted for my behavior and my thinking, which had gotten me drunk again and again and again. For me, she said I could postpone the God thing, and I did, by the way, for the next 10 years. You know, it's interesting. I sat in the room for 10 years and my life got better, but my insides did not get better. I was in deep pain 10 years later and by April tenth, two 2010 at 328 in the morning and my sponsor had told me it was going to happen. I had that incredible experience where I threw the big book across the room because I couldn't find anything that gave me that internal peace, because I think in reality, I had always wanted that that internal peace. I couldn't get it from outside of myself and all of those other things I had attributed to bringing me peace. And I was finding some sanity in the room in my life, but it wasn't touching inside of me. I didn't even know that there was a whole world called inside of me until I got to AA. You know what happened to me? I I can't explain it to this day. But when I threw that big book across the room in my bedroom, in my empty house, my children were away for the weekend with their grandparents. All of a sudden, the room turned into a river. And there was a boat that was coming. And there was a woman in that boat. And she reached out because, you know, I was out there treading water and drowning. And she picked me up and put me in the boat. And I'm really freaked out because I don't know if what I'm seeing is reality or some delusion. She put me in the boat, picked up the oars and took me down the river. And I had the deepest cry I had ever had in my life. In fact, even now, just talking about it makes me so shake inside because that is what AA promised me that this, the hoop, to jump through from what I understood. Anything that would bring me peace could be on my terms, because I couldn't do any of that other stuff that I'd either grown up with or what society thought was correct. I could not do anything that would ask me not to be political. I could not do anything that that went against anything that I thought was conforming against my own activism and the own liberation philosophy that I practiced in my life. That woman in the boat became that instrument of comfort for me. And today, when I am stressed out, in fact, this very moment, morning, when I was thinking about the loss of my comrades, these aren't men I slept with, but these are men who, when I was crazy as a lunatic, took me aside and gave me some wisdom that for whatever reason at the time, I was able to hear The big book says on page 27, my favorite page in the big book, it says some of us thought we could do without a spiritual life. I would have been in that club. I would have been in that club. I was not going to have anybody tell me what to do, but what I have found is that I have a spiritual life and that is broad and that comes through people and that comes through experiences. It's not affiliated with any particular religious institution because that would not work for who I am. Carrying the message then became the message of being the power greater than myself. I remember that challenge in the big book at the end when it says, if the only big book is us, then we better be the example of this program. We better be what people are attracted to. And that became for me, peace, humanity, love, and absolutely some kind of trust that there would be guidance. My first sponsor was a woman named Cindy. My second sponsor was a man named Jim. My third sponsor is Jackie, and she's been my sponsor the last 27 years. So I became teachable, I became trustable, I became trustworthy as I was willing to develop real, honest relationships with people. So here's the most important part of my sharing. What am I like now? What did staying in the rooms do for me? Rooms that were hard to be in. So I have four sweeps that I want to share with you, or what I call four fronts. From zero to 10, I want to say that um, I recognized that I had some things that happened in my life, which I needed some outside help. So I got counseling and I needed it. Those breakdowns were for some reason. I had years in the program before I addressed any kind of trauma that had happened in my life. Second, I said that I had three sponsors and each of them came into my life at a very important time and carried me when I could not carry myself and before I had a higher power. Maybe that is the relationship of, of closeness that I had never really had in my life. I certainly didn't trust my parents. I grew up emotionally, and I began to heal my, not only my family traumas, but I began to heal the fact that I, in putting myself in, in crazy situations, I had been raped, I had been mistreated, I had been violated, and also societal traumas. You know, I am an African-American in America who has had a history of violence against my people. And in that instance, I began to realize that there had been generational trauma and I, uh, with regard to inequalities. And so I began to try to find a balance. I'm gonna later say toward the end of my share that it is being in AA that made every single thing possible for me in terms of me being an activist. It's not the other way around. Staying in these rooms made me better at everything I eventually did. Love someone, be a better parent to my four children who are now adults, certainly be an activist, certainly be a better teacher, certainly be a better neighbor. I took step one very deeply, step two and three very deeply, as I began those first 10 years of my recovery. And my hand was held by very loving people in my home group. And I swear, I didn't always understand what they were talking about. And I certainly didn't appreciate some of the things that they brought into the room. I brought my black body and I brought my vagina and I brought my breasts and I brought my grandma's stories and they couldn't relate to some of those things. I felt a tremendous pressure to not say some of the things that were part of my experience because people in the room in the rural area were too sensitive to questions of race. They took it too damn personally. In the next 10 years of my recovery, I had to face facts in step four, five, six, and seven, and eight, and I had seven, and I had to live in a different way. What happened to me, I remember at that time, is I got strong enough to have a voice you know what it's like to sit in the rooms and not have a voice because you're afraid of, that you have to censor that vo- voice because the very people that you rely on are the people you don't know if they're gonna to react to you. So I began to get a voice and begin to practice that voice. There were no other people of color in the rooms. So I began to reach out to other meetings in the Des Moines area. I eventually became part of a women's group. They were all African-American women. And I began to go to treatment centers and and prisons and try to help other people of color join the rooms of AA. And that was very good for me to do. I traveled to Ghana, to Ethiopia, to Pakistan, to China. And what's important about that is I got a chance to carry the message. In Pakistan, there were no women in the rooms, only men could be in the rooms. And their first jug of choice was heroin. They had to beat that before they could defeat alcoholism. I started meetings in Ghana and in Ethiopia. And when I went to the international, the AA International in Atlanta, the very person that carried the flag across the stage was the very person that I took the program to. And that warmed my heart. The fourth thing that's important about that second decade in AA for me is that Al-Anon became part of my story in 1996. I became, I began the journey of being a double winner and Al Anon kicked my ASS. I'm gonna tell you right now, for me, because I had a lot of healing. I had very skewed ideas about how other people were supposed to change for my convenience, (laughs) that I could only be happy if they. And I sang the they, 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 they song. And then I sang the they, 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 they song. So as long as they didn't change, I didn't feel responsible. I had to learn how to keep the spotlight on me, let other people be who they are, face the journey that they were to face. And this not only happened in, my, in the relationships I had at work, in my uh, but it also began in my family. You know, it's interesting that I had a faulty idea around this time that if I stayed in the rooms and I worked the program and I became a better mother, none of my children would have this disease wrong. My son began to show all the behavior of this disease and I ended up going to Al-Anon, not for those husbands, because I've had three, but because of my son. I thought I would lose my mind when my son chose drugs and alcohol, alcohol and street life. So I needed to go to AA, Al-Anon and have more than just my AA program. The third sweep was in which I got a chance to practice step eight and nine. I had a lot of restitution. I had hurt a lot of people. And it took me by the way, 15, maybe 16 years to do all the amends. When I wrote my list, I had 67 people on it. My sponsor narrowed it down to 23. And they were the hardest moments in my life to go to people and talk about what I had done. And I did not get a warm reception to at least half of them. People told me to get the F out of their face. Um, I had done a lot of inappropriate, wrong behaviors to other people. I also became involved with a group that began to talk about Buddhist principles. And somehow, some way, those principles i did not become a buddhist but those principles began to make sense to me it is what it is if it happens good if it doesn't happen good it really challenged me to stay in that gray area that my sponsor talked about so here i was with no traditional view of a higher power this woman in a boat is saving my ass from pen and tongue and now i'm seeing some principles that go along with my AA principles to help me in my continued activism. I traveled, taught, and began to do work in the fellowship all over the world. I was restored to sanity. In the 20s and the 30s, other things dominated my life. As I said, Al-Anon became part of my story, but as most of us were dual addicted, I always had trouble with food, so I began to address the underlining issues of food addiction and compulsive overeating in about 2006. I had had much more mental sanity. I was not having as many emotional relapses as I began to trust this anchor, this woman in a boat, which I have no idea what that is all about. But I also began that outside help had helped me and Al-Anon had helped me face the issues in my family, in my community, in my society. But I begin to have health concerns. I think that's called the wreckage of your past. And so I begin to have to address those. One of the great things that happened to me in my 30s is that I got into a relationship with somebody who wasn't an alcoholic. Imagine that. I always loved the bad boys, the assholes who had no intention of ever being loyal, being uh, available, uh, being kind. I love those motorcycle types who would show to me that I wasn't worth it. They would reinforce all the things I already thought about myself, except in the thirties, I had had that spiritual experience in the program and I had grown internally and changed. And I looked up and I found a human being who I grew to love, who is my partner right now and has been for 20 years. And in that relationship, There was nothing in them I needed or wanted to change. Acceptance has been the key to our relationship. He's an adult, so am I. We fight ferociously over ideas, but at the end of the day, we love and are loyal to each other. And I'm gonna tell you, we raised a daughter and I never saw the kindness and love of a father that he has given our daughter and his stepchildren. This I never experienced in my life before. There were many moments when I would go and hide in the bathroom because I could not manage that level of love between a father and a daughter and a father and his children because I never had it. I never had that stability. I'm almost done. So having a partner wanting to maintain and not make that person sick, I work like hell the traditions. I learned that that first tradition that asked me to do things on the basis of our common welfare, not Keisho's runaway head, became the fundamental basis of how I don't do things to undermine my relationship, marriage to one of the kindest persons. And because he comes from another country, um, comes from Ethiopia, we have thus traveled all over the world with his job, and I've had a chance to live in many countries, and I have loved that and carry the program with me. So what is it like now, this fourth suite? And this is the one that I'm being challenged and intrigued most by because since the 30s, I became a grandmother, boy, and a grandmother that my grandkids wanna see. I retired after 43 years of teaching in colleges and universities, no more professing. I continued my community activism. A month ago, I was in the pipelines in Minnesota, and I have been taking George Floyd memorials to small towns in Iowa who are standing up against the stereotypes that small towns in Iowa are racist. Now, whether you like that or not is irrelevant to me. I would hope one day we would have a conversation about it, but my staying sober made me a better activist and I have to fight injustice where it is, in a loving, kind, and a supportive way. And I have learned to do that. Sitting at that pipeline in my grandma chair was awesome. I didn't choose to be arrested, but I chose to sit there and witness what was happening. Um, I became Buddhist-affiliated, which meant I started going to retreats and learning about more of those ideas on a global level, which gave me a lot of peace. If you ever come to Iowa, please come to my house and see my shrine of Buddhas that I start collecting. In the other room, I have a shrine of pigs, so I don't even know how the two of them get together, but I collect pigs too. (laughs) And they're cutest little pigs you've ever seen. Maybe that's because Iowa is a place that has a lot of pigs. You know, the last two things I wanna say is that what saved me in the rooms of AA was service. You know, I've done 17 roles of service from whether I was sharing a piece of literature, cleaning the ashtrays, to being an international rep at the Women's International Conference for the Midwest, for Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota. Today, that these are honored roles. And the last week for me, Is that I have been involved now in what are called BIPOC meetings black indigenous people of colors autonomous world service organization approved meetings. meetings that have emerged since the pandemic meetings that are dedicated to the safety of people of color sharing their experience strength and hope and their identities in the room, and I am learning from you young persons. I got sober in an all white space, which was loving and caring, but also required some censorship for me to be safe and comfortable. So I am now learning and sharing my experience, strength and hope to those young people about what that was like as they share their experience with me of what they find it difficult to stay in the rooms because they don't find it safe. We all want AA to be more tolerant of of um, injust, of not AA, but we want AA to be a safe place for all of us. You know, it is not a place to fight injustice. It is a place to recover from this disease. But people don't stay in the rooms when they don't feel safe. That had been my experience. So when I see young people creating special groups for that safety to be so that we can contribute and be an instrument of attraction to have more people of color join AA, I'm for that agenda. AA needs to be safe. We need long-term recovery wherever those rooms are. We need recovery that has an understanding of all kinds of identities, all kinds of language, all kinds of uh, spiritual expression. And that is something that now I can share with my group (laughs) in small town Iowa, because guess what? It has become a space and a place in which greater diversity has started to show up. And it isn't just racial, <laughs> it's identity, it's religion, it's, ver- it's ethnic, it's other things. The final thing I wanna say is that the steps did help me recover from this disease, without a doubt, and I still work them. The traditions kept the fellowship healthy and whole because I can never return to doing this by myself ever. If, any, if I had any idea that I could do that, I would be, you'd have to put me back in that loony tomb. So I carry the message, the traditions taught me how, but when I carry the message outside of the United States, it is the concepts that taught me how to do that. And by the way, I didn't even read the concepts, didn't even know there were concepts until I was way into 25 years into the program Concept number four says participation is the key to harmony. And now I know why those 43 stories in the back of the big book are stories of people carrying the message where they found themselves and the gratitude and peace they got from doing so. So thank you for letting me share my story of recovery from this disease.